Hi there. Welcome back to the Equipoise Podcast. We're back in the studio continuing our conversation about alcohol, and today we're going to talk about the history of abstinence among Christians as a point of view with regards to drinking alcohol. A quick look around at the Christian landscape reveals that complete abstinence from alcohol is held by many, many Christians as a biblical command. In other words, uh, this view would not hold that drinking alcohol or not is a preference or even a standard, nor would they hold that it's something uh, from which to abstain by way of being safe or cautious. Rather, they would say that drinking alcohol is a sin, is prohibited in the Bible. Or, if the view is held more softly, they would say that at the very least, drinking alcohol is wildly unwise. It is a fool's errand and better avoided. It's not my goal to chat about whether or not that position is valid on its face, nor do I want to rifle to the Bible for certain scriptures about abstinence in this episode. That's for later. Instead, I want to take the time in this episode to see if the position of abstinence is either historical or novel. In other words, if the Bible teaches complete abstinence from alcohol as a command, then we should expect to see it held throughout Christian history, even if only in a minority. You can apply this principle to anything, by the way, from dispensationalism to the nature of creation to Bible translation. If your view only surfaced in the last 200 years or so, there is a good chance it might not be an orthodox one. Now, that's not to say that it's a bad one, right? Not all new views are invalid. We don't want to commit the fallacy of chronological snobbery one way or another. There are indeed relatively new cultural views around treatment of animals, taking care of the world, uh, fair wages, corporal punishment, and so on that are surfacing in the West that are virtuous and good overall. For what it's worth, however, I think I would argue that these are not necessarily new views as much as they are recent configurations or innovative applications of timeless virtues. Anyhow, my point in bringing this up is to say that while not all new things are bad or invalid, there is still a lot of weight on an idea's historicity in the church that is appropriately attached to any belief or behavior we might hold. So let's check it out together then. When did the idea of complete abstinence for Christians surface in the life of the church? Was it right away? Was it recently? Let's check it out. In 1980, just about 40 years ago, Jack Van Impe wrote a book that represents the views of millions of Christians in America. The book is called Alcohol, the Beloved Enemy. In it, he states that, quote, The Bible forbids the use of wine as we know it today. All wine? Every drop. End quote. In this book, Van Impe states that there has been a staggering amount of damage caused by alcohol to our families and society, and so forth. So we know that the abstinence-only position is at least 42 years old. But let's keep going back. In 1920, the 18th Amendment is passed. To quote a paper from the Ohio State University, The leaders of the prohibition movement were alarmed at the drinking behavior of American, and they were concerned that there was a culture of drink among some sectors of the population that, with continuing immigration from Europe, was spreading. End quote. Fair enough. Like Van Impe, these prohibition leaders were concerned with the overuse of alcohol and its negative effects on, well, everything. Fair enough, except the prohibition didn't really fix anything. In fact, many would argue it just made things worse. But prohibition in and of itself was really a victory for the prohibition movement, which can trace its roots back at least a few decades prior. 
In fact, the Anti-Saloon League, founded by Pastor Howard Hyde Russell in 1893, as well as the Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded in 1874, which is still up and running, by the way, were influential in getting this amendment passed. Interestingly, the Women's Christian Temperance Union still has a pledge as follows. I hereby solemnly promise, God helping me, to abstain from all distilled, fermented, and malt liquors, including wine, beer, and hard cider, and to employ all proper means to discourage the use of and traffic in the same. So the complete abstinence view is at least this old. But let's keep going. Come on. In 1869, Pastor Thomas Welch invented non-alcoholic wine for use in the Lord's Supper. Prior to this, wine had been used, naturally. He built an empire by persuading churches to use his creation called Dr. Welch's Unfermented Wine. This may have been the first time that a separate category of wine was commercially available, non-alcoholic wine, which, etymologically speaking, is a non-sequitur, much like dry water. In the year 1805, what appears to be the very first temperance sermon in America was preached by one Ebenezer Porter in Washington, Connecticut. It was called The Fatal Effects of Ardent Spirits. I heard about this sermon, looked it up, and found that, interestingly, it really doesn't open up as a sermon against alcohol as a whole. From the onset, it's clearly against, according to Porter, intemperate drinking, or drinking too much. In fact, on its own, I actually really enjoyed the sermon, at least for the most part. It... It hits home in several ways that drunkenness destroys self, others, and society. I could almost hear this man's voice ringing loudly and authoritatively from a tall pulpit in an old American church building as I read it. But in his sermon, Porter seems to draw the conclusion that since alcohol can be, and tragically often is, abused and can be addictive, we ought to never, and I quote, be lifting the poisoned bowl to our lips. Let's keep going backwards. We'll take an even bigger jump this time and hop across the pond over to England. A few decades prior, in 1736, Thomas Wilson published a book called Distilled Spirituous Liquors, The Bane of the Nation. I took a look at this and discovered that Wilson was building a case for prohibition, or at the very least, very high tariffs on wine, brandy, gin, and other strong liquors. Like Porter, Wilson's reasoning was that it was too easily abused. People were getting drunk and it should therefore be inaccessible, except for medicinal use. Interestingly, if I understood this little book as well as I think I did, he seemed to take a softer stance toward beers and ciders, and came down much harder on the more distilled liquors. To his credit, he did a lot, and I mean a lot, of research of the effects of hard liquors on his country, and he made some really good points, all of which led to the same conclusion at which Porter arrived. Drunkenness is bad, and it hurts people, families, and nations. It's important to know that Wilson was influenced by a sermon preached by Dr. Chandler, Lord Bishop of Litchfield and Coventry in 1724. So even as early as 1724, we're seeing some efforts to get alcohol as a whole banned due to the apparent widespread overuse of alcohol. I think it's also worth noting here that, especially during these time periods, alcohol abuse was probably quite a bit more rampant than it even is today, if you can imagine that. And so some might be motivated not as much by uh, logic, facts, balance, etc., as they would be by simply stepping out their front door and seeing time and time again broken homes, ruined families, uh, people whose health was absolutely and utterly destroyed. These points came up time and time again in some of these old sermons I was reading against alcohol. 
So while a number of Christians who hold the abstinence position with regard to alcohol might not be able to point to a chapter and verse, there's still a lot of merit in sympathizing and empathizing with their position, saying, yes, I look around and I see that our nation probably is not better off because alcohol is so widely available. And though I may disagree with their conclusion, I can at least understand why they might have advocated for total prohibition. So before this time period, you know, mid-1700s, early 1800s, it is difficult to track down any real cases for abstinence in the Christian community. Before this, you'll find a lot of warnings against over-imbibing, but nothing by way of complete abstinence. So by way of conclusion for this episode, I'll simply state that prior to the late 18th and early 19th centuries, you really don't have any Christian positions that make a case for total abstinence outside of the ones that are making their case pragmatically. That is, they're not quoting scripture directly, but rather building a case that since it's so easily abused, it must be sin. We'll cover that aspect eventually, but for now, I'd just like to wrap this episode up by saying, um, in terms of how far back does the total abstinence slash drinking alcohol it's sin view go, uh, it goes back probably about 150 to 200 years uh, at most. Now I think I'll begin work on the next episode in which I'll switch tracks a little bit from the roadmap that I drew out in episode one. We all knew that would happen. And I'll, I'll cover a history of alcohol consumption, particularly among Christians. So until that time, stay balanced.